reporting live from Egypt, the This Was a Thing International Radio Corporation Association presents The Curse of King Tut's Tomb. Cultural archaeologists Raymond Hebel and Robert W. Schneider talk about how an actual archaeologist slashed Egyptologist Howard Carter uncovered King Tutankhamun, the boy pharaoh's tomb, 100 years ago in 1922. Did Howard Carter also uncover the curse of the pharaohs? Stay tuned and make the decision for yourself. The curse of King Tut's tomb. This week on This Was a Thing. The Charleston and Gloria Swanson. Fatty Arbuckle's time spent in court. The Flapper Girls and Dance Marathons And sitting on a flagpole just for sport This was a thing That was a thing The Cotton Club where Ellington would swing This, that, these, those, the things Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Today, we are looking at the curse of King Tut's tomb. King Tut got her curse. <laughs> now, this was a thing because when Tutankhamun's tomb was opened in November 1922, a hundred years ago, death and misfortune came to some of those involved in unsealing the tomb. Was it a curse? Or just strange coincidence. Ooh, it's like when they did Exorcist. Exactly. Now, in sixth grade, my school did something called Historical Figure Day. Uh, <laughs> and you got to choose a historical figure that you would cover throughout the year. Uh, you did a report, a presentation, and then on the actual Historical Figure Day, you came in dressed up as the historical figure. Now, Rob, can you guess who I dressed up as? Elvis. I think you no, did well, Elvis. No, no, I, I, King Tut. Like I, oh, uh, oh, King, oh. King Tut. Sorry, yes, King Tut, yes. Actually, I dressed as Howard Carter. Who's that? The man who, that is credited with finding the final resting place of the boy Pharaoh. That's right. The archaeologist that found King Tut is who I chose. I chose Howard Carter because I grew up loving Indiana Jones. So, you know, it had to be like the same thing, right? Yes. Well, I was wrong because I found out actually Howard Carter didn't even carry a as far as I knew, so that really started to change things, but I still had to do the report. But anyway, due to Howard Carter's meticulousness and dedication to the field of archaeology and Egyptology, he helped the excavation team catalog thousands of items from the tomb, even while tragedy was happening to some people close to the crew. No. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the boy king, the rise of what is called Egyptomania, and how the pharaoh's curse rose to prominence, and then about the excursion and all the strange things the that J follow. The J pharaoh's curse. <laughs> That's a wheel of fortune before and after. You just can't stop doing impressions that are actually really good. Yeah. <laughs> What a curse. Yeah, what a curse. So King Tut actually wasn't well known before they found his tomb, which is hard to believe now considering that he's the unofficial face of ancient yes. Egypt. Tutankhamun, whose original name was Tutankhaten or Tutankhawaten. There's another Tutankhawaten in equity. Yeah, exactly. In pharaoh equity. <laughs> now, he was born during the, the reign of Akhenaten. He was Tut's father. Akhenaten is known for converting the kingdom of Egypt from polytheism, which is the worship of multiple gods, to monotheism, which is the worship of one God. Mm. And some scholars actually believe this is the first one of the first cases of monotheism. Oh, I did not know that. Although it was a, an odd worship, though, because Akhenaten had converted the kingdom to Atenism, which is a monotheistic religion that is centered on the cult of the god Aten. Not only did he make major religious change, but he also moved the Egyptian capital to Thebes from Amarna. Now, this period is now known as the Amarna period. How about that? Now, after Akhenaten died, two minor pharaohs ruled, but only until Tut was old enough to rule. Now, before the throne, Tut and Common, or Tut was known as Tutankhaten, which is the living image of Aten. One of the things that he did was rebury his father in the Valley of Kings, which is a place that we'll go into uh, in a little, little bit later. Now, Tut was only between eight and nine when he ascended to the throne in 1332 BC. So, you know, having a, a young ruler, I'm sure, was 
looked upon like, great, <laughs> great. Now, he was also nine when he got married. What the hell is going on over here? His wife was a few years older than him, Anak Sunamun. Not much is known about her, but she was his wife slash probably half-sister slash probably blood sister slash possibly stepmother. Now, the main thing that Tutankhamun did when he was king was restore Egypt to the polytheistic world of the god Amun. So he was like, nah, dad, worshiping a one god is boring. Back to many. Yeah, back to many. During his reign... There were a few military campaigns against their enemy, the Hittites. Tut most likely had nothing to do with these battles from a logistical standpoint. He moved the capital of Egypt from Amarna back to Thebes. What up? Back to Thebes. Back to Thebes. Now, he restored temples and other things that were destroyed from previous conflicts. And he had two powerful advisors, Harimheb, who was the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, and I. And many suspect that he was the true power at the time Aye. of it. Aye. Now, Tut died at the age of 19, around 1323 BC. A 2010 study showed that Tut most likely died of a malarial infection after he broke his leg. His genetics also probably had something to do with his demise, surprise, surprise, as his immune system was probably pretty fairly weak, and it could have also been sickle cell anemia. I succeeded Tut, ruled for about four years, continued the reforms that Tut initiated. Egypt returned to worship Amun. Cult of Aten was discarded, like I said. Remheb then succeeded I, and he did all he could to erase Aten, Akhenaten, Tut, and I from historical records, mm. temples, and architecture. Temples and monuments that referenced the kings in his line were destroyed. Shit. So he just, he, he didn't want to have He's anything the... to do with them. He still continued the reforms that Tut made. Just don't mention him <laughs> due to him making sure the reforms went through he's considered the ruler who restabilized egypt during a hectic and divisive uh, marna period tut like his father akhenaten was buried in what is now called the valley of the kings like i mentioned earlier it was used for burials from approximately 1539 bc to 1075 bc and as of now there are 63 tombs there now despite the name uh, it not only kings are buried there families of pharaohs and other nobles were laid to rest there as well with all of his monuments destroyed tut had been forgotten and his burial site was built mm. over nearly 200 years after his reign tutankhamun's tomb was covered in debris from construction of tombs devoted to Ramses V and Ramses VI, it was the end of an era. Now, the modern, quote-unquote, world's fascination with ancient Egypt actually started because of Napoleon Bonaparte. His invasion of Egypt and Syria between 1798 and 1801 helped spark interest in the country's vast history. Napoleon had a bunch of scientists and scholars on the campaign with them. They documented many of the ancient monuments, which had never been so thoroughly documented before. Now, one of the things they found was the Rosetta Stone. Now, I know that Rosetta Stone is a useful app that helps you learn languages nowadays, but the actual Rosetta Stone helped people decipher ancient texts in a way that they never could before. Oh, interesting. Now, in short, the Rosetta Stone is a rock slab that had the same decree etched on it three different times. But the decree is in three separate languages. One is hieroglyphics, one's diamotic, which is an ancient Egyptian language, and the bottom is an ancient Greek. And it says that a council of priests confirmed the royal cult of Ptolemy V, the king of ancient Egypt. Some parts are missing, but using the ancient Greek portion, which, you know, was already known, ancient Greek, uh, it was deciphered, which meant that they were able to understand what the hieroglyphics meant much better now. Now, with the finding of Rosetta Stone, modern Egyptology is said to have officially begun. And now the world's fascination with Egypt just took off. Literature, architecture, art, film, politics, and religion based on Egypt. Most people couldn't afford to actually visit Egypt, so Egypt was brought to them in through themed costume parties, home mm. decor, all forms of art, you know, plays. All Egypt was in advertising. Egypt even appeared in dessert service. So if you wanted to have your crumpets, it would be on something that looked like it was from Egypt. With subjects like Cleopatra and pharaohs and hobbies like deciphering hieroglyphics and looking through the pyramids with their many maze-like tunnels, Egypt just fascinated the Western world. Egyptomania made its way to America as well. Egyptian architecture in the U.S. became known as the Egyptian Revival. Egyptian Revival symbols and architecture were especially popular for cemeteries in the form of gateways, tombstones, memorials. Mummies represented a fascination that the Western world had with the undead. Now, the concept of mummies in a fictional sense has its origins in the 19th century when France was colonizing Egypt. So the first time the world would read about the concept of a reanimated mummy was in 1827 in the three-volume novel The Mummy! A Tale of the 22nd Century, written by Jane C. Loudon. It's about an Egyptian mummy named 
Cheops brought back to life in the year 2126. This book was released only nine years after Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So although unlike Frankenstein, Cheops gives political and life advice to all that befriend him. Frankenstein did too if you got him in the right mood. Yeah. Just don't have a daisy. No. When it comes to the idea of a curse set on a tomb, it's extremely rare, actually. Now, this is thought to be due to the fact that desecrating a tomb was so unthinkable in ancient times that they didn't even dare to record it. Though they do appear uh, mostly in private tombs in the Old Kingdom era. So it wasn't, you know, so they are there, but it's not to the extent that people would assume, like, oh, I'm sure every tomb had markings on it. Now, some would threaten the destruction of gods while others would threaten the wrath of gods. A lot of god stuff. Now, this is from National Geographic. Salima Ikram, an Egyptologist from the American University in Cairo and a National Geographic Society grantee, believes the curse concept did exist in ancient Egypt as part of a primitive security system. She notes that some mastaba, which is the early non-pyramid tomb, walls in Giza and Saqqara were actually inscribed with curses meant to terrify those who would desecrate or rob the royal resting place. They tend to threaten desecrators with divine retribution by the council of the gods, Ikram said, or a death by crocodiles or lions or scorpions or snakes. Now, the term mummy's curse came to prominence due to the works of fiction. Louisa May Alcott, who you may know from Little Women fame, her 1869 mummy story, Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse, being one of those works. And The Mummy's Curse and The Pharaoh's Curse are the same thing with different names at this point, but they'll be interchangeable throughout this episode. I see. Now, The Pharaoh's Curse started to make the rounds in the modern world around 1912. The story goes that four young rich Englishmen were visiting the excavations at Luxor in Egypt, and they were invited to buy an exquisitely fashioned sarcophagus which contained the remains of the Princess of Amun-Ra. They drew the, the rights of purchase. The winner paid several thousand pounds and had the coffin taken to his hotel. A few hours later, he was seen walking into the desert never to be seen again. The three other men suffered terrible misfortune shortly thereafter. The coffin made its way around to different owners, each affected negatively, once it was in their possession. It was eventually donated to the British Museum. The museum workmen who transported it were affected, one breaking his leg, the other, who was apparently in good health, dying days later. The princess was placed in the museum's Egyptian room. Other exhibits in the room were hurled around at night. Night watchmen were said to have heard frantic hammering and sobbing coming from the coffin. One night watchman dies while on duty, prompting another to want to quit. Cleaners refused to go near it. The mummy was moved to the museum basement. Within a week, one of the helpers fell seriously ill, and the person in charge of the move into the basement was found dead at his desk. More misfortune occurred, and word had spread by now that nearly 20 people were affected in a negative way in barely 10 years' time. Eventually, a hard-headed American archaeologist who dismissed the happenings as quirks of, ha of circumstance paid a large sum for the mummy and arranged for it to be transported to New York on the HMS Titanic. Bum, bum, bum. Well, based on records of the ship's cargo manifest and cargo diagrams, there was never any mummy on board the Titanic. Now, it turns out the mummy that the story refers to is, in fact, just a coffin lid of the Princess of Amun, and it never left the British Museum. It's still there to this day. The story was made up by two Englishmen, William Stead and Douglas Murray. They said that when the mummy arrived in England, that it was set up in a drawing room of an acquaintance of theirs. The claim was that everything in the room that was breakable was destroyed. When it moved into a different room, the same thing happened. This is from Snopes. Wherever the mummy went, it brought sickness, death, and destruction to its owner. Sometimes after Stead and Murray invented their mummy tale, they were invited into the first Egyptian room of the British Museum and noticed the coffin lid of the Princess of Amun. They concocted yet another story that the look of terror and anguish on the face depicted on the coffin lid indicated that the coffin's original occupant was a tormented soul, and her evil spirit was now loose in the world. Mm. Stead and Murray told their fanciful state of to eager newspaper reporters, then as now, weren't about to let the truth get in the way of a sensationally good story. The two stories were conflated into one and spread widely, and the Princess of Amun came to be identified as the mummy whose mortal remains wreaked havoc wherever they were stored. 
Now, the way the story made its way across the Atlantic is because William Stead, one of the originators of the story, was a victim on the sinking of the Titanic. Traveling to America at President Taft's request to address a peace conference, Stead loved to tell the story of the cursed mummy, and being on the Titanic made no difference. He apparently told the story at a dinner party on board. The story stretched well until just after midnight. After the Titanic sunk, survivors recounted Stead's mummy tale to a reporter. It then ended up getting jumbled around to the tale of a mummy being on board the ship. From there, word started to spread. The rumor in 1914 blamed the same mummy on another ship that sank in the Atlantic, the Empress of Ireland. Either way, stories of a mummy's curse making the rounds thanks to what became known as the unlucky mummy. The man who led the team that found Tut was archaeologist Howard Carter, who I dressed up as for Historical Figure Day. Howard got his start as an artist. His father was an artist and taught his son the ways of the craft. Now, a nearby mansion to his home where he grew up contained many ancient Egyptian artifacts, which sparked his interest in Howard that would last for the rest of his life. Now, a wealthy woman named Lady Amherst, who was an amateur archaeologist, was impressed by Howard's artistic skills, and she prompted the Egypt Exploration Fund to have Howard assist on an excavation of tombs. He was to record what they found. Now, this was 1891. He was only 17. Could you imagine going off and doing something like that at 17? I would be terrified but I am good at stick figures. Now, despite being 17, he figured out innovations and improved previous methods of copying, decoration, and ancient tombs. He would also train to be an archaeologist in this time, so he was a jack-of-all-trades. Was Indiana Jones an archaeologist? Yes, that's that's what made me get into uh, Howard Carter. Oh, oh, cool. Hey, look at that wraparound. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, he continued to do his work throughout Egypt on different digs, gaining respect from the people he worked with. He became an inspector for the Egyptian Antiquities Service, which was a governmental body responsible for the conservation and protection of artifacts. Now, the Antiquities Service began to fund excavation projects that Howard would lead. He was moving on up. Uh, until 1905, when he resigned after a dispute regarding a violent confrontation between French tourists and Egyptian dig site guards. I picture them hitting each other with the Benny Hill music. <laughs> I don't know why. With baguettes. With baguettes. Ray, what are you thankful for this month? Well, Rob, I'm thankful that we have so many great This Was a Thing listeners and that so many of them financially support us so we can continue to dive as deep as we can into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. And support my Hummel habit. Want to help us be even more thankful? Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for This Was a Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue you doing what we are doing. And what are you doing this November, Rob? By being thankful that we can have as much diet canned cranberry sauce as we want. Gotta get my P90 Eximus body on. Ow. Pull the hamstring. Go lay down, Rob. Mm. We are thankful for all of you and we'll be even more thankful if you can head on over to Patreon.com. Now, in 1907, Howard began to work for a man that would help change his life. George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, 5th Earl of Carnarvon. But we'll just call him Lord Carnarvon. He was an extremely wealthy gentleman whose father was a conservative politician. Lord Carnarvon's interest in Egypt happened by accident. Now, in 1903, he was in a serious auto accident while racing. Now, he never fully recovered, uh, and his doctor suggested that he spend his winters in a warm climate. So, Egypt it was. He would become an amateur Egyptologist himself and would buy Egyptian antiquities for his collection back in England, and he started to use the country house for his display. Now, for any Downton Abbey fans out there, Lord Carnarvon's country house, Highclere Castle, would later serve as the main location on the hit PBS show. So that big giant house that they all live and work in, that was Lord Carnarvon's country home. So this dude's family had some money. Howard started to work for Lord Carnarvon in 1907, and there were always rumors of a pharaoh named Tutankhamun, though there hardly was any evidence of his existence. Little was known about Tut at this point, though he was known to have shifted the monarchy back to the traditional practices of polytheism, like I said. Now, because Tut was responsible for the shift back to the polytheistic normality, it's most likely that Tut was buried in the Valley of Kings, the traditional site for royal burials, and no one ever found Tutankhamun's tomb, assuming that no tomb would have been cut into the valley floor, but there were signs that the king had been buried in the valley. In 1909, Harold Jones, who was a British archaeologist, discovered a tomb that had markings that signified tut, box handles, knobs, and gold foil. All had the names of Tutankhamun, Anaxinamun, which was his wife, and both the royal and non-royal names of I 
Tut's successor. Wait, so just so I'm, I'm understanding. So at first, they thought there was no such guy as Tut. There was little known. They kind of knew about he him. He was there, but he wasn't yeah, anything they, they special. They didn't know anything about him. And like, oh, okay. Like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, then when they started to discover these hieroglyphics. And they started finding hieroglyphics. And then they, were they like, started oh, finding little signs. Like, oh, maybe there was Tut. But they didn't think that they, like, though, there's no way we've found, we've already combed pretty much most of the valley at this point. So there's probably not a, a tomb buried for him. But, oh, let's see if we can find out more and see if we can find little you know maybe some pots you know or Got parts it. from a chariot now most people assumed that they'd found all their could from the pharaoh called tut now by 1912 most of the valley of kings had been combed through after several years finding nothing archaeologist theodore m davis wrote i fear the valley of the tombs is now exhausted the Valley was Davis's claim at that point, something that he soon relinquished ownership of in 1914. Now, when Davis finished excavating, Howard and Lord Carnarvon decided they wanted to have a go at the Valley. Now, due to World War I, Howard had to wait until 1917 to get to work. It was a difficult task from the get-go. They had to sift through decades of soil heaps from previous excavations. Now, Howard or Lord Carnarvon never said out loud that they were looking for Tut necessarily, but they both felt like there was something else out there. Like I said, the findings from the previous tombs clued them to the fact that he was most likely buried in the Valley of Kings, but they didn't expect there to be any sort of royal burial. A lot was happening in Egypt during these excavations. There was the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. Then in February 1922, Egypt was declared an independent country from the United Kingdom. So anything related to Egyptian antiquities would be dealt with by the Egyptian authorities now. And Egypt was starting to be in charge of Egypt at this point. Now, by mid-1922, only one section of the valley was left. It was covered in debris. It was difficult to clear due to ancient workers' huts, which I thought was interesting that over there were still huts all from all that time. And on top of that, it was close to a very popular tomb that tourists loved to go to. They were between dig seasons and Lord Carnarvon was just ready to give up. But Howard wasn't ready to give up. He offered to cover the expenses of cleaning the final section. Lord Carnarvon was impressed by this dedication and agreed to fund one more season. Just to get a head start and avoid most of the tourists, Howard and his team started on November 1st, which was a little earlier than normal. Lord Carnarvon decided to stay in London this time. Now, Howard brought with him a yellow canary, which was seen as a sign of good luck. Howard's foreman, uh, Reese Ahmed, exclaimed, A golden bird! This will lead us to the tomb! Only three days later, on November 4th, 1922, a worker uncovered a step in the rock. That step led to another step, and another. And then there was a whole set of steps that led down, and then they realized they had uncovered the beginnings of a tomb entrance, entrance staircase. Now, at the bottom of the stairs was a sealed doorway. Howard cut a peephole to see what lied beyond the door. All he could see was rubble. But it was something. It's said that when Howard got home that night, his servant met him at the door. In his hand, he was holding some yellow feathers. Terrified, he told Howard how the canary had been killed by a cobra. Howard told the man to make sure the cobra was out of the house. <laughs> get it out of there. <laughs> the servant replied, The pharaoh's serpent ate the bird because it led us to the hidden tomb. You must not disturb the tomb. You've been drinking again, haven't you? <laughs> Unaffected, Howard sent the man home. The Egyptians thought that the cobra attack was a very bad omen, but that didn't stop Howard. He sent a telegram to Carnarvon telling him to get his booty on down to Egypt, which is, quote, Now, the workers refilled the pit so the tomb could stay secured. Howard asked for assistance in the dig from his old friend, Arthur Callender. <laughs> with two L's. Once the pit was unfilled, they got to the sealed door again. On further examination, they noticed the name Tutankhamun was inscribed on the door. Uh, now, the day the tomb opening was full of joy and celebration, no mentions of a curse. Maybe, Daniel, you can put, like, sounds of a crowd being excited. Now, the doorway had been partially demolished before being resealed, which indicated an, of an ancient grave robbery on the tomb. This passage from Howard Carter's book about the moment they breached the door may be actually one of the greatest passages ever written, in my opinion. I think it's really cool. With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. Darkness and blank space, as far as an iron testing rod could reach, showed that whatever lay beyond was empty and not filled like the passage we had just cleared. Candle tests were applied as a precaution against possible foul gases, and then, widening the hole a little bit, 
I inserted a candle and peered in. Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Callender standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict. As first I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. It's really hot. When Carnarvon asked Howard if he could see anything, Howard is said to have replied, Yes, wonderful things. Now, there were numerous rooms in the tomb. The first room that Howard saw was the antechamber. At some point out in the days after, Howard, Evelyn, and Lord Carnarvon squeezed through a small hole to find the tomb's burial chamber. It was mostly filled with a set of gilded shrines that included Tut's sarcophagus. Now, amazing as this was, it was even more amazing was the fact that the ancient grave robbers had left this room untouched. So they hadn't even gotten to that part with the sarcophagus. So all the ancient gilded sarcophagi was still there. Now, at this point, they needed to wait for Egyptian authorities to go any further, so they had to wait. The breaching of the door that was done was technically a no-no, and it Mm -mm. became something of an open secret in the Egyptological community. Now, the reason Howard did it is because he had been embarrassed in the past after a big to-do about a prior dig turned out to be a whole lot of nothing. Way back in 1900, he opened what was thought to be an undisturbed tomb in front of many highly placed guests, only to find the tomb was nearly empty. So, Mm. didn't want that to happen again. Once everything was good to go at the antiquity service, Howard started to realize the gigantic task that lay ahead. Over the course of 3,000 years, nature had slowly made its way into the tomb. There was moisture from flash floods that happened in the valley. Over time, it seeped its way into the tomb. That moisture created long, alternating periods of humidity and dryness, humidity and dryness over 3,000 years. Ugh. Now, Howard knew that he would need expert help to help unclear the tomb in a professional and careful manner. Luckily for him, Egypt was flush with archaeologists at the time. Now, he got the help of Albert Lithgow, who was the head of the Egypt expedition of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. The clearing of the antechamber began on December 16, 1922. Howard meticulously labeled everything with reference numbers and had things photographed as they were 3,000 years ago before they moved anything. So they wanted to keep show how everything was placed in the tomb as is you know i mean a lot of things he did helped preserve this tomb and it'll turn out this was the most complete tomb ever discovered there were a lot of artifacts this is how howard described the antechamber so crowded were they that it was a matter of extreme difficulty to move one without running serious risk of damaging others, and in some cases they were so inextricably tangled that an elaborate series of supports had to be devised to hold one object or group of objects in place while another was being removed. Once the news of the discovery hit newspapers, Howard and Lord Carnarvon became internationally known. They were celebs, and the little-known pharaoh that was known as Tutankhamun was now nicknamed King Tut. Egyptology started to have a new offshoot, Tutomania. All for this one king that they knew nothing about a few years earlier. Yep. Now, no, no matter how the news was getting out there, it was getting out there. Books about Egypt were selling like hotcakes. Some Egyptologists even wrote new books. The discovery inspired all kinds of new art, including films. And this little ditty from 1923, Old King Tut. In old King Tut, 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 on common day, beneath the tropic skies, King Tut, Tut, Tut was very wise. Now old King Tut, Tut, Tut was always gay. Cleopatra, she sat upon his knee. Tut, that's where she sat. The girls. I was into that. I was into that. Now, the antechamber wasn't fully cleared until February 16th, 1923, almost three months since the initial find. The first season was a huge success. Carnarvon and Howard were extremely happy with their finds, and they knew that only more was going to be found. Now, shortly after the tomb's closing, Carnarvon was shaving, and he accidentally opened a mosquito bite on his cheek. This was followed by weeks of illness, which included blood poisoning and pneumonia. Lord Carnarvon then passed away on April 5th, 1923, and he was only 57 years old. He had been in poor health for 20 years, but that didn't matter to others. It was a sure sign of a curse. Do it again one more time. A curse. Carnarvon's son and heir, Henry Herbert, 6th Earl of Carnarvon, said that Cairo suffered a power outage at the moment of his father's death, while in England his father's dog let out a howl and died. This is from the New York Times in 1923. 
Carnarvon's death spreads theories about vengeance. In Egypt, England, France, and here, occultists advance stories of angered gods. Scientists ridicule them. Neither evil spirits nor poison could prevail today, they insist. London, April 5th. Genuine regret is expressed here on all sides at the death of Lord Carnarvon. The loss of Egyptological research is felt to be severe, and many tributes are paid to the perseverance that brought him to success, the final fruits of which, however, he was not destined to enjoy. Now, an Egyptologist, Sir Ernest A. Wallace Budge, keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities from the British Museum, he called reports of the curse bunkum. Bunkum? Yeah, bunkum. I think it was a word of bullshit. Oh, I see. Now, this next quote from him is a sassy. If there is anything in the vengeance idea, everyone in the country who possesses an Egyptian relic would be accursed. I know of no such thing. Miss Marie Corellius stated that she possesses a book translated from Arabic by a professor of Louis XVI, which stated that Egyptian tombs contain boxes of secret poisons, presumably put there to harm those who should venture to invade the tomb. The book is in the British Museum, and M. Vatir, the translator of it referred to, died in 1660. 67 and could not have been a professor of Louis the 16th. Now this quote made me laugh. Remember, this one is 1923. Uh, this is from the New York Times as well. On the other hand, Ralph Shirley of the Occult Review preferred to retain an open mind. I should not like to say one way or another with regard to Lord Carnarvon, he confessed. There is no evidence. It may have been some native indignant that the Luxor operations has put poison into the tomb. Ooh. Regardless if you believed in the curse or not, people were putting their opinions in print. Now, Lord Carnarvon had a half-brother who, 14 years younger, named Aubrey Herbert. Aubrey had been born with a degenerative eye condition, and by the time he was in his very early 40s, he was almost completely blind. Now, a few years had passed, and he lost all sight. On top of that, he had extremely rotten teeth. Now, a doctor suggested that his bad teeth were somehow responsible for his bad sight, and Aubrey proceeded to have all of his teeth removed, hoping that it would help him regain some sight. Surgery didn't work. He got sepsis as a result. He wound up dying on September 26th, 1923, he was 43, and his passing only came five months after that of his older brother. But because of this curse, even though he was never anywhere close to the tomb, cursed by association, although some reports say that he had, in fact, visited Egypt shortly before his death. So, like, there was a lot of different scary reports and stuff. In between dig seasons, Howard wrote a book, and now it was called The Tomb of Tut Ankh. Amen, and it would be the first of a set, many volumes. It detailed the excursion up to that point. It was published in October of 1923, just as Howard was heading back to Egypt. Sequel! Now, he was still able to receive funding for everything from Lord Carnarvon's widow, Almina Herbert, Countess of Carnarvon. But with the Lord gone, Howard now had to be the spokesman to the government and the press. More and more excavating, more and more artifacts and treasure, more and more tensions with the Egyptian Antiquity Service in regards to how the contents of the tomb would be split up. Now, the man in charge of the Antiquity Service was a Frenchman by the name of Pierre Lacau. Back in 1922, Lacau had declared the end of the traditional half-share given up to excavators. The Egyptian government might grant artifacts to the sponsors of the excavation as gifts, but all antiquities in Egypt belonged in principle to the government. This change did not, however, apply to Lord Carnarvon's existing deal. Now, that deal allowed for the divisions of fines unless they find the tomb is still to be fully intact. If it was a complete tomb, the contents had to be surrendered entirely to the Antiquity Service. Now, Lord Carnarvon had planned to argue that Tutankhamun's tomb did not qualify as intact because it had been robbed, even though it was restored and resealed in ancient times. Now, he had fully expected to receive a share of the artifacts and had promised that the Metropolitan Museum would be well taken care of and they were to receive a portion of his share. But without Lord Carnarvon alive to argue the case, Lacau sent a letter on January 10th, 1924, saying that all the tomb's contents were property of the Egyptian government, meaning no division of fines would take place. Other Egyptologists protested, writing in a letter saying that Tutankhamun's discovery belongs not to Egypt alone, but the entire world. Now, this only inflamed tensions. The Egyptian government had no interest in being accommodating. Surprise, surprise. Now, a major moment in the excavation came February 12th, 1924. After rigging a series of pulleys, they removed the extremely delicate cracked stone lid of King Tutankhamun's sarcophagus. Underneath a burial shroud lay 
on a gilded and inlaid wood coffin that was in the shape of a human. Now, on it was Tutankhamun's face. It was the outermost of a nested set of coffins. Now, the ancient Egyptians were way before the Russians when it came to nesting things. Mm. This was the first complete set of royal coffins ever found. There was a viewing of the coffin the next day for the Egyptian press. This would be followed by a tour of the excavator's wives and families. Now, a member of the Egyptian government took offense to this. He pointed out that the wives and families of the Egyptian cabinet members had not been allowed to tour the tomb, so he forbid any families from entering the tomb, even going so far as to send police to make sure no one got in. Howard and his team were outraged. They announced that they were stopping work in protest, and they called impossible restrictions and discourtesies imposed by the Egyptian government. Howard locked the tomb where the stone sarcophagus lid was still suspended in the air above the coffin so they didn't even bring it down it was just leave it in place the egyptian government terminated the carnarvon deal the government then held a lavish event at the tomb to celebrate its reopening attended by numerous officials and celebrity guests with none of the team that was there that found it howard took the case to the mixed courts of egypt which ruled in his favor that case was then brought to a higher court which was ruled against howard howard would leave egypt for the season on march 21st 1924 and embark on a lecture tour of the U.S. and Canada. Tensions about the tomb started to ease in Egypt with Howard gone, and the Egyptian government tried to find a different Egyptologist to finish clearing the tomb, and there were no takers. The dig was just too big to undertake for anyone else that wanted to do it. After some political turmoil in Egypt, a new prime minister was put in place on November 24th, 1924, and he formed a much more, quote, pro-British government than the previous group, and all parties were able to reach an agreement, and digging continued for a third season. Sir Bruce Ingram was a friend of Howard Carter's. Sometimes when friends are close, they'll get them something nice, a present, to show appreciation or care, which is what Howard did for his friend. Now, a story made the rounds in 1925. Sometime after the tomb was opened, Sir Bruce Ingram received a gift from Howard. It was a paperweight. Perfectly normal gift. Makes sense, especially if it gets Wendy. But it wasn't just a normal paperweight. It was a paperweight of a mummified hand Ah. wearing a bracelet that apparently was inscribed with the phrase, Cursed be who moves my body. No, 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 no. I have some good news and some bad news. Good news, Sir Bruce Ingram lived decades after he received the gift. Okay. Bad news, shortly after receiving the gift, his house caught fire and burned to the ground. When he tried to rebuild, a flood ripped through and tore it down. Get out. The curse. I don't like this. Another death, supposedly, in 1926 was of Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. He was an Egyptian scientist that worked for the Egyptian government. He was said to be in charge of taking x-rays of King Tut's mummy before it was removed from the tomb and transported to the Museum of Cairo. Now, I can only imagine how much radiation came out of the x-ray machines in the 1920s, but... I digress. And like the Louvre representative, just how or even when he died is not really concrete. One story says he died shortly after performing the x-rays. Another says that he actually died in 1924, which is two years before Tut was even removed. Regardless, it had to be the curse. Definitely not him being around antiquated x-ray equipment from the 1920s. A very mysterious death occurred November 1929, Captain Richard Bethel, who is said to have been Lord Carnarvon and or Howard Carter's secretary, different reports say that he worked for both men, possibly started to work for Howard after Carnarvon's death. Either way, he was in extremely close proximity to the tomb. He actually was behind Howard on the first inspection, so he was one of the few that went in there. Bethel was found smothered to death in his bed in an exclusive gentleman's club called the Bath Club. Shortly after the death, the Nottingham Evening Post said, the suggestion that the Honorable Richard Bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there were a series of mysterious fires at his home when some of the priceless finds from Tutankhamun's tomb were stored. The curse. the curse! Now, only three months later in January 1930, Bethel's father, Lord Westbury, was believed to have thrown himself off his seventh floor apartment balcony. He is said to have kept tomb artifacts in his apartment. One of the f- other people that people say was affected by the curse, his name was Arthur Weigel, and he may have been one of the people that helped spread rumors of the curse. Now, Arthur Weigel was an Egyptologist and journalist who wrote for the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail wasn't the Times London. That meant that the Daily Mail didn't get to publish the stories from the tomb. Needing to write something, Weigel started to write of a possible curse. Oh. He didn't believe in mysticism per se, but needed to write 
something. So he wrote what he thought readers would want to hear or read. He wrote about the canary being eaten by the cobra and was said to have been annoyed by Carnarvon's glib attitude when he was about to enter the tomb. He even suggested that that Tut could have been a living mummy. Quote, The opening of this tomb still presented itself to my mind as disturbing of a sleeping man. Mm-hmm. It was as though he were somebody who had been left by mistake. Someone who was alone in an alien age and who had been wakened by thousand faces of staring eyes not filled with reverence but curiosity. He died in 1934, and the Daily Mail wrote, The death of Mr. Weigel recalls the story of a curse on the violators of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. So it was part of his obituary. Now, after the tomb was cleared, Howard Carter returned from the excavation work. He continued to live in Luxor for winters. But as interest in Tut started to fade, Howard's isolation began to grow. It's said that he didn't have many friends at the end of his life. And he worked as a part-time dealer for museums and collections for some years. Uh, He passed away at his flat next to the Royal Albert Hall on March 2nd, 1939, at the age of 64. Hodgkin's disease was responsible for his death. Uh, the he, curse. Yes, exactly. Howard gave out some small objects to visitors to the tomb or to fellow Egyptologists where they may have found their way into museum collections. After Carter's death in 1939, his niece and heir, Phyllis Walker, discovered such objects in his possession, such as a silver tenon from one of the coffins and a glass headrest, and had them returned to Egypt. So, Good. she, yeah, she did the right thing. Of course, other deaths were attributed to the curse, I'm sure. There were some left out, and that's not even mentioning how many laborers probably passed away during those 10 years that were never written about. One of the expedition members that was was injured in a traffic accident in 1970, and the London Times ran a story with the headline, A Pharaoh's Curse. So even all the way to 1970, 38 years after the tomb was cleared, they were still running the headline. Whether they believed it or not, I can imagine that anyone who was close to the tomb probably watched their backs a lot afterwards. You know what I mean? Like, oh God, yeah. Now, after the break, we'll discuss some studies that were conducted to see how long some of these folks lived and if they are affected or not. And between now and then, I think Rob is going to put a curse on me. Oh boy. I'm just warming up. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. And with that, the ruler, who would later be known as the Boy King, was soon to be forgotten about for 3,000 years until a crew led by a curious Brit named Howard Carter stumbled upon a hidden step. But we're going to pick that up at next week's class. Now, do we have any questions before I dismiss you? You keep calling Tutankhamun the boy king. Um, does it actually say anywhere in that picture writing that they identified as a boy? Well, it's assumed. Well, there you go, white male patriarchy. Oh, I'm sorry, professor. Just assuming things about other people. But like I asked, is it actually in any of the picture words saying that they identified as a boy? Or was there a a vast community of gender-fluid individuals. The uh, picture words are called hieroglyphics. Answer the question! Maybe you didn't hear him. Or are you silence-embracing? Deaf? Oh, <gasps> Did he just say the D word? That's what you were implying. Oh, thank you, Professor Mansplaining, for telling me what I was implying. Let's see what Twitter thinks about that. Is that my phone? What is this, a pound sign? No, it's hashtag. Hashtag, you fucking boomer fuck. Hashtag pyramid of lies. Hashtag tut tut women. Hashtag mummy issues. Hashtag wrapped consent. Hashtag no fracking. I didn't even mention fracking. No. No, you didn't. And look at the environment now because of your silence. Look, I am just trying to answer his question. Whoa, whoa. My pronouns are whoa, whoa. Okay, I'm just trying to answer whoa, whoa's questions. I just changed it back to his. I'm just trying to answer his questions. Don't gaslight me. A YouTube video said that dry, arid regions like Egypt are havens for gender fluidity. And are you even Egyptian? Let me see your 23andMe profile, you fraud. Look, if I cancel the final, can we just let this go? Viva la revolution! Whoa, whoa, you're not French. You can't say that. That's appropriation. Thank you. This was a sketch. So weeks after journalist Arthur Weigel's death, Herbert Eustace Wicklock, curator of the Egyptology Department of the Metropolitan Museum of New York and close friend of Howard Carter, examined the curse in detail. Now, he wrote in the New York Times that 
26 people present at the opening of Tutankhamun's burial chamber. Six had died within 10 years while 20 were still alive. Of the 22 people present at the opening of the sarcophagus, only two had died. And of the 10 present at the unwrapping of the mummy, all were still alive. Now, a lot of the death could really be due to the fact that they were working in a desert and going through an ancient tomb that had been sealed off from the world for 3,000 years. Through different studies, many different types of mold, including black mold, was identified. <laughs> what Whatever was in there was building up over the years that couldn't have been good for people's immune system, especially without any kind of, you know, ventilation, 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 exactly. Now, the popularity of King Tut has only grown bigger over the years with numerous exhibits over the decades all over the world. Interest in the boy king has always been there and new discoveries about him are being made all the time with advancements in technology. And I feel like I can't do this episode without mentioning the Steve Martin classic, King Tut. young man he never thought he'd see king people stand in line to see the boy king king tut how'd you get so funky, funky did you do the monkey born in arizona Now, some people now say that it can be considered appropriation, but I'm guessing those people don't realize the absolute frenzy one of the Tuts exhibits had in the 1970s. People became obsessed all over again. And Steve Martin understands irony, and most of the rest of the world does not. But you know who does understand irony? Mark Schroeder. Oh! Take it away, Mark! This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a This Was a Quiz. With Mark Schroeder. Were you ever into Egypt or ancient Egypt stuff, Mark? Yeah, I think it kind of was. I, I when college came around, I wanted to entertain the idea of being an archaeologist purely because of Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, it's not like that. No, I took I took uh, an archaeology class one day in like my junior college. Like, oh yeah, let me do it. And the teacher literally started with the beginning of Raiders. Oh, and, and she was like, the intro, this yeah. is nothing like what archaeology is like. And, uh, well, I took my hat and leather jacket and I walked right out of class. It'd be funny, like, the second day it's a lecture hall class and the second day it's just the first two rows. Like, after she does that, the <laughs> drop-off. I would have raised my hand first day and been like, when do we get measured for the leather jackets? Yeah. <laughs> Are whips considered weapons on campus? <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, you grow up and you know a lot about King Tut, you know a lot about curses. There's, it's just in the in the air of lore. But I was never really scared of of curses i was scared of cursing ah uh, yeah especially around my mom and dad because like that, that was a big no-no growing up for me but now that i'm older i fucking love to curse and i know that mouth. rob and ray love to curse i was too. A, i was a bad boy when i was a kid i said the f word one time in front of a kid and i had to give him a gi joe so he wouldn't tell on oh, me oh oh you're going deep that kid blackmailed you yeah but i had two of the same gi joe so brilliant mm-hmm. so you right now sorry colin gilbert well I know we were all potty mouth then. I think we're all potty mouth now a little bit too. We're going to find out which of you is the bigger potty mouth with a little game called Curses. Oh. Robin Ray, you're going to compete against each other head to head. Curses. Fuck yeah. (laughs) I'm going to read questions. Curses. These are, these are thematically linked to okay. cursing, to swearing. Whoever gets the answer right first gets the point. Okay. okay. So here we go. Let's see who can answer first. These were the original seven words you can't say on television. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker. That was only six words. You're missing one. Uh, tits. Yes. Shit, Good piss, job. Fuck, oh, my cunt, God, Ray. motherfucker, and tits. While appearing on CBS's Late Show with David Letterman on March 31st, 1994... This guest said the F word 14 times. Courtney Love. Uh, uh, is it Harmony Corinne? No, that is Madonna. Madonna. Oh. The infamous Madonna. According to a 2020 study by GQ Australia, this Hollywood actor holds the record for most on screen swear words spoken. Samuel L. Jackson. At 376. No, Rob for the Steagle. He's an Australian actor. No, that might be throwing you off. GQ. He's Australia. not Australian. GQ Australia oh, just, just, just did it was this a, study. It was a worldwide... Uh, it was a slow entertainment month. It's, it's <laughs> Joe Pesci. Or this is Jonah Hill. Jonah, Jonah Hill. Hill holds the record for most swear words spoken on film, 376 currently. Really? Jonah Hill is the filthiest actor out there. Number four. This former president 
was the first on record to use profanity in his campaign when he embraced the nickname Give Him Hell Blank. Harry Truman. Harry Truman is right. Wow. You're tied at 1-1. One, one. Number five. The first person to drop an F-bomb on Saturday Night Live. Charlie Rocket. Charlie, Charles Rocket, yeah. No, and... Paul Schaefer. No, it's Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer is Paul Schaefer. the really? right. I'm getting the point. It's Paul Schaefer. Well, I should make you listen to the answer at the end. Was the show staple and non-cast member in 1980? And you're right. It was Paul Schaefer. First wow. F-bomb. Number six. This slang term for a bodily function dates back to 1250 AD, preceding the word buttocks by 50 years. But Or poopy? No. Asshole. Fart. It is fart. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'll let you just machine gun it till you get it. Fart dates back to 1250. People saying fart back in 1250. Number seven, using your middle finger as an obscene gesture Fuck originated you. in this country. Scotland. No. America? It was Greece. Greece was the first country. Danny Zuko. It was all about. Yeah. yeah. Greece. Number eight. The string of symbols that replaces swear words in comics and graphics is called this. Oh, God. I don't know. This This isn't really interesting, but I don't know it. It's called a Grawlix. Oh, a Grawlix? Grawlix. Number nine. This language, the 13th most spoken language in the world, contains no designated obscene words. Farsi? It is not Farsi. You said no designated curse words? This language, the 13th most spoken language on Earth, contains no designated obscene words. Lithuanian. Japanese. Oh. The Japanese language has no designated obscene words. And the final question. At the end of the 18th century, this new word was created when the original word's use was vastly overshadowed by its slang term for penis. Spotted dick. Schmeckle. So this word's real meaning also has a slang term. So it's a real word that's not a curse. Cock. Cock. Cock is the slang term. A, a, ch- a rooster? Rooster, yes. They invented the word rooster because the real word for the animal was cock, but so many people were using it for penis that they needed a new word wow. for <laughs> been, the animal. That's actually interesting. That's They're funny. Like, we, have, we have to create a word for this because we call it a cock, but everybody's just using it for dick, and it's confusing. Wow. And everybody's That's snickering funny. when I tell them to feed them, and they're snickering. So they invented, they had to make That's up a, a new word. That's a tidbit I'm going to use because that's actually interesting. I Next like that. Next time I'm on the farm. Robbie Schneider, you are a filthy, filthy Ooh. mouthed individual. You Ooh. win that game. You with bad your, boy. You gotta You're take so a mouthful of soap. Bad boy. Mouthful of hand soap because we don't have any bar soap in this house. You have no. to oh, squinch, God, you have to no. squinch yeah. it out in your mouth. I went to a hotel. I'd use hand and like bar soap, and then literally I had one of those moments that was like in an old comedy where I was like it slipped out of my mm-hmm. hand and like flew. Well, up. In a hotel, they give you like a soap credit card. It's just yes. a tiny yeah, sliver of yeah. rectangle. It's like yeah. what am I supposed to wash with this? Yeah, and there's not even a chip for me to insert it. Well, I'll show you where you can. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Okay, folks. Our website is thiswasathing.com. Instagram, it's at thiswasathingpod. And uh, once again, if you like what we're doing, head on over to Patreon. It would help us immensely to keep this show on the air. Ooh, how a PBS (laughs) of me. And also, if you like the show, order a videotape for $30 to show in classrooms. Those videotapes were not $30. They were like $100,000. And Ray will also trace back your ancestors. You will find your, we can't say roots legally, so we're going to say trunk. (laughs) Trace, Trace your trunk. Trace your trunk. All right, goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 